Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sharing the Magic. We bring you the best guests and the most intriguing conversations, and tonight is no exception. I'm your host, your ghost host, Barry. Our guest tonight is a writer, director of live action, animation, AR, audio animatronics, and immersive theme entertainment projects, including a record-setting 22 attractions for Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Studio Paris, Disneyland Hong Kong, Tokyo Disneyland, and a Disney Cruise Line. He is also a four-time winner of the Theo Awards for Disney. We'll meet our guest in a moment, but first... George, folks, what is late, Goofy? Well, I gotta tell you, we've got a real treat in store for you today. Play's <laughs> a true genius. Play in the world of animation and filmmaking, too. <laughs> well, guessed it. We're here. We'll shine in this here spotlight of the one and only Jerry Reese. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Goofy. Say, Jerry, well, it's nice to have you. <laughs> it's so great. I feel like Goofy's right here. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and with Michael and Mickey, I worked with Mickey, with Wayne Allwine. And, oh, wow. uh, and it feels like like Goofy stepped in the room with me. Good job, Jeff. That is high praise. Thank you so much. That just that means a lot to me. I that's just that's wonderful to hear. I feel right at home now. <laughs> well, I hope you do. It's <laughs> great. I've been, right. at times jumped into uh, into voice work myself. Uh, for for example, I don't know if anybody knows this, but uh, in the Brave Little Toaster, uh, after I cast John Lovitz, he got his big chance to go on Saturday Night Live. So he headed off to do that and was not available for the recording of the song. So I actually sang all the radio parts in the Brave Little Toaster, so. I already knew that about you, Uh oh. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I, when I, anyone who's a voice actor, I'm like, ooh, when I deep dive, I'm like, ooh, what? I, I just love the world of voice acting, so I. It is great, oh my gosh, what a, what a world. Wonderful, what a world. wonderful broad range of talents that I've met over the years and some people that span both but boy there's yeah. a unique world of people that really know when you take everything else away and it's just their voice yeah. it's a special gift yeah. I, at times I was casting a film and I would have people come in and I would just think yeah that that's the person and then when they would leave and I would just turn on the, the tape and I would listen back and look at the, the sketch of the character and only listen to the voice and go no, it's not quite there. And, it, you know, in person, you're sort of fooled by yeah. all the story about coming home from the airport and the yeah, yeah. Drink and all the stuff, all the magic yeah. in the room. But when you take all of that way and go, what's what's left just with the voice? It's a yeah. unique talent. Well, you're a unique talent and you're a voice actor. So it's it's just it's anyone who's been in that world. I just I just look up to you immensely. So. Well, thank you. Jerry, why don't you go ahead and tell us how you began your career, your massive, incredible career, and tell us all about it. Oh, gosh. The, uh, the start, I, I mean, I have to pare down because it was quite a big adventure, but I have to make it fit on today's podcast. I'll just tell you, I, I grew up in a little town, Loma Linda, it's in Southern California. To me, Burbank felt like the huge city compared to Loma Linda when I was growing up. It, it was a a very conservative little community. And so uh, when I was a kid, you didn't go to movie theaters. That was considered worldly. So 
I didn't even get to go see Disney animated films in the theater because nobody in the community was going. Like, it was a no-no. But you could watch The Wonderful World of Color. Uh, so I'd watch the, you know, the Disney show on, on uh, the Sunday evenings. And gosh, I remember just falling in love with Disney animation from the earliest age. And I, I just was trying to find any way to be exposed to it. And I remember going to uh, the Gulf oil stations to the gas station where they had the, the Gulf, you know, wonderful Disney magazine. Do you guys remember that? Any of you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. I, I would search through that magazine, you know, hey, mom and dad, let's go to the gas station. And uh, I looked, I found in the back an address where I could send drawings. So I would do little drawings of the Disney characters to send them in. And I got a letter back saying, you know, basically, uh, we aren't really associated with Disney. We just put this stuff out. So we don't really know what to do with your drawings, but they're nice and good luck. Uh, so I kept trying to find ways to find a path and I couldn't think of any. So I just kept trying to do it. And I, I, I was helping out with a youth program and a whole family program. On Saturday nights, there was a, a get together in the evening where people would play sports. And I talked them into letting me show Disney cartoon parade short films on 16 millimeter on a patio of this building there. So people would come and they would swim together and play basketball and tennis. And I was the, the preteen. <laughs> and early teen who was showing Disney cartoons on 16 millimeter with an old DeVry projector. Well, it was kind of new at the time. Yeah. Uh, and I just loved threading it. I, I would receive, you know, there was a catalog of the Disney shorts and the cartoon parades and certain sequences like the, you know, in the Fantasia, the, the sequence with the dinosaurs, you could get that as a separate rentable thing. So, or, or something like Will of the Whale, uh, gosh, just some amazing things. So that was my way to really see this stuff. And since I had talked them into letting me show it for the community for this activities night, I, I was the one who would receive, my family would receive the, uh, the rentals early. So I couldn't look at it on the projector, but I'd pull out the film and look at it with the light and see the frames of animation and just get so revved up and excited. And then on Saturday night, I would show it on a, a, it was a rear screen projector. So I'd set up my projector on my side and it would have the audience on the opposite side. And uh, it was vivid, vivid color. And so I would watch the same cartoons probably 10 times in a night because you know, I've changed the crowd out being like a new group come in, I'd watch again. So boy, <laughs> did I went from like starvation where I couldn't look at anything because I, I wasn't allowed to go to the theater to like making my own little approved <laughs> theater and watching them again and again. And so then I started ordering tools. I, I uh, you know, my family really helped me out with ordering from the Cartoon Color Company, uh, like a peg strip and animation paper that was punched. And, and I tried some animation uh, myself and would get it back and figure out how to improve it and stuff just on my own. Still had how old, no idea. How old were you when you first started doing that? Gosh, uh, uh, 12, 13, 14 in there. And so I was studying as much as I could uh, and I was doing flip books and stuff, even at an earlier age, uh, just loving animation. But I, I finally, it was, it was too expensive for my family to get, to keep ordering the punched paper uh, from the cartoon color company. So uh, they found a, a paper mill where you could get it cut the right size, unpunched for much cheaper. And I found out that at the medical center, 
at the uh, where they they had a, a university for med students and at that place they had an audio audio visual department that had an industrial strength hole punch so i could take my unpunched paper there that my family was able to get for cheaper yeah. and i talked somebody into letting me punch the paper there so i'm doing that and i get caught by the person that runs the department and they wonder what this kid is doing in their <laughs> room so i'm like uh somebody told me i could do this what are you doing that for so i said well i'm doing animation at home and he goes you can't do that he said what and he goes you need an oxberry camera stand you need he went through a whole <laughs> list you can't do that and he said so you know go, you know go away so i took my stack of paper which i had punched some so i took it with me and left and my mom told me she remembered this years later she told me she remembered that day because she had driven me there and she witnessed this takedown that the this adult did it's like telling me you can't do that and she said when i got in the car she looked at me and said well so how did that make you feel when the guy told you you can't do it and i don't remember this but she told me that i looked at her and went oh he doesn't know what he's talking about so uh so i held on to my confidence then he caught me a second time at in the same place because i ran out of punched paper i went back and i talked to one of his his people into letting me in so i'm doing he catches me a second time so now he's like really like come on what are you doing and i said well i am doing it i know you said i need an oxbury stand but i i put a, a tripod in the living room and i put tape so nobody gets in because it's a hot set and and it doesn't move much it works pretty good and he's like well let me see bring something in so now it was a prove it moment so I go get my little Super 8 projector and on a piece of cardboard in the corner of the room, I show him uh, some animation that I had done. And I, uh, one of the pieces I showed him was, uh, I had tried to animate the penguins. Uh, and I had seen a little bit of that for Mary Poppins. Uh, and so I, I had been teased by it. I tried to imitate the, the dancing penguins. And boy, does his, his tune changed. He, he, he looked at me and he just goes, you, wait, you did that? You, you didn't trace that? That's yours? And I said, yes, I did. So he just said, wow, I, uh, I went to a, a lecture recently and somebody from Disney spoke and they said it's getting to a time where some of their veterans are going to start retiring and they're starting to look for new people. So if you're interested and he tears off a piece of paper and writes down a phone number and he hands it to me and he goes, that's, that's the phone number to the production manager of Disney feature animation, if you're interested. So I'm like, oh my God. So the, the guy who said, you can't do it, handed me the most important, probably the most important piece of paper I've ever held in my life. It was, it was my ticket. Uh, so I, I went home and I called the number and Ed Hansen, who was the production manager of Disney feature animation at the time, picked up and I told him I was interested in becoming an animator. And he was just very nice and he said, well, you know, have your dad drive you down and we'll take a look at your stuff. And suddenly I, it was happening. And so uh, my dad drove me there. It took about an hour and a half, something like that. And still have the pass that they gave us. And they drew a little picture of how to get to Ed Hansen's office from the gate. And my dad waited for me in the in Ed Hansen's little lobby. And I went in with my portfolio and I had I had been into art for my whole life really and I, I had been equally intrigued with Norman Rockwell and Sargent and Leindecker and and then Disney and Disney feature animation especially and oh my gosh I got to rent 
Bambi to show to to a church group in in their own auditorium. So this was like, we're not going to the theater, folks, where you associate with other people. I'm coming to your sanctuary and showing you Bambi. So I was able to I was able to look at some stuff that really inspired me. So anyway, I had all, all, all that stuff in one portfolio. I had portraits and animation drawings and all kinds of stuff. And I had the pieces of film that I had shown to the guy back in Loma Linda. Yeah. And so he said, well, I'd like to take you up to meet Eric. And I didn't put two and two together until later, but this was Eric Larson, one of Walt Disney's nine old men. <laughs> like, So he introduced me to Eric. Eric looked at my stuff and really liked what he was looking at. And so before I left, he said, well, so you're in high school, right? And it said, yeah, I had the time I was in high school and I had had another year and a half to go, two years to go. And he said, Eric said, well, this will be your desk when you come in. If you ever have vacations or a break, this will be your desk. And, uh, you know, I'll give you pointers. So I said, okay, <laughs> great. So I suddenly had uh, an invitation from them while I was in high school. And this was before CalArts existed as a program. And my parents told me uh, over the years, years later, they reminded me, they said, oh, Disney used to call and ask when you were having the next high school break. It's like, oh, is spring break coming up? Can he, when can Jerry come in? So they were really keeping tabs on me in those early days. And so I did, uh, oh, and by the way, two days ago, I found uh, animation loop, 35 millimeter. This is date. This is a test that I did with Eric Larson. Wow. And it is dated August 15, 1974. Oh my goodness. Wow. So cool. This so is sharing was, the magic first y'all. Right. So here. Uh, nobody else has seen this. I haven't even no. posted it on Facebook. Uh, right here. We got August it. 15, 1974. It's this strip of film that uh, Eric, I did as a test for Eric Larson wow. back in the day. And he would give me pointers. I'm dying to see what it is. I haven't had it transferred. I, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but it was one of my tests with Eric. So I'm, I'm doing that for a year and a half, close to two years. And then I'm going to graduate from high school. And they said, they called me and said, can you come take a bigger look around? Uh, uh, we're going to take you on a bigger tour than you've, not just working with Eric, but kind of really look around the whole department because there's something we'd like to propose. We're going to start this thing called the character animation program at CalArts. And how would you like to be teacher's assistant for year one? And uh, it starts in 75. So, uh, you know, you're going to graduate high school, perfect timing. So I said, oh, absolutely. Oh my gosh, what an honor that would be. But my family can't afford something like CalArts at all. And uh, they just said, well, we'll give you a scholarship. So wow. that did it. So as soon as I graduated high school, I was out spending my all the rest of the time in the summer with Jack Hanna, who ran the character animation program. And I was prepping. So everything that was on the walls, all the reference animation characters that were uh, that were up on panels along the walls to inspire people and all the flipping scenes that had been duplicated. I those were all things I had done while I was working with Jack, where I, I looked at all of them and chose characters to put up. I cut them out and put them up. I I asked I asked the the they called it the morgue back at the time, but it was the <laughs> you could call the morgue, which was where all the animation drawings were stored for all the films they made and say, you know, there's a there's a scene of in Pinocchio where Jiminy Cricket is running 
to catch up with it and putting on his jacket. And uh, I just love that scene. Can we bring it to my room? And they'd, sure. and they'd bring it in a cart, drop it off in your room. And it was the original drawings with cardboard and rubber bands. And that's it. And just a slip of paper identifying what it was. And they would just leave it in your room. <laughs> and they did that for us for a few years until a few years later, somebody started stealing. But none of us, that no, nobody I knew would ever steal. No, nobody. Nobody. We won't. But then. Then we'd, uh, you know, I could look through and study frame by frame, and then if, if I'd go, yes, this is one that should be out at CalArts for my fellow students, then I would send it to photocopy. It wasn't really Xerox. It was a much more elaborate thing. It took up three different rooms. It was a big machine where they would do a photocopy process that was very precise, and they would make copies, and when you get it back, it was on good quality paper with the punch, So every, and everything was registered perfectly. And you almost swore you had the same stack of paper in your hand. It looked so beautifully the same. So I did a bunch of those to take out to CalArts for the first year students to, to study. Uh, so that was part of my responsibilities. And answering the phone and uh, talking to my fellow classmates. I'm like, okay, how did Brad Bird, how do you spell the last name? And to be or be wired. And Musker, how do you spell Musker? And how many T's in Lassiter and stuff like that. So. And then, uh, then it happened. We were out starting the guinea pig year. And um, so there were like a dozen of us and we, we were the guinea pig year for the CalArts animation class. So I had already had, you know, a couple of years uh, in high school of working with Eric before that happened. And I just, it, it was amazing meeting other people my own age who were just as excited, just as uh, uh, exhilarated by it. And so we hung out together and it's funny too, cause there were, there was kind of uh, a bit of a challenge thing where most of us were like the only, only teen in our community that was interested in this stuff. Uh, so we were kind of special at home and there it was like, oh, everybody, everybody in the room <laughs> like dreamed of Disney and, oh, you've seen Pinocchio three times. I've seen it 10 times, you know? <laughs> like, so then it was like jousting for who had more pixie dust. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, then, you know, there's other many adventures we had along the way, of course, yeah. uh, working together, uh, just Whoa. stimulated by uh, Bill Moore, uh, our design teacher, uh, everybody agreed post CalArts that Bill Moore probably had the most impact on our artistic and on the rest of our life as well, just the design principles he taught applied to everything that you were going to do in life. And, and we felt really terrified of him in the first year and then in love with him the second year. Uh, he just, he, he was, he would do things like uh, be smoking. And uh, if he didn't particularly like a project, he would put his cigarette out on the project and he would go up <laughs> to somebody who do paper sculpture and spend hours and hours doing paper sculpture. And he'd walk up and go, Oh, this is a nice shape and rip it off and take it over and put it on somebody else's and go now if it was combined like that then it'd be even better and wow. so he, and we had heard stories like him yeah. ripping an intercom system off the wall and stepping on it that was it at uh i believe it at uh art center rather than than at cal arts but but he admitted to it but he said well they i told him to stop talking during my class on the intercom <laughs> um you just but, tell me you don't like it. You know, you don't. Yeah. Have so dramatic. But, but bottom that. line was, man, we, he just threw all of that bravado. He he told us and it was and he was the only teacher. Bill Moore was the only teacher that made me cry where I, I, I left class. And when I was alone, 
I actually cried or feeling crushed. But when we, over the course of time, when you paid attention to what he was teaching, and boy, did he teach really specifically. He gave you assignments that were precise and, and challenging. And then he would make you sell what you had done. He'd make you get up and talk about it. And that was part of the assignment is explain to me why I should be even interested in this thing you made. Yeah. Um, and he wanted you to be good at that. And he told us, he said, I'm giving you a hard time because out there in the real world, it's just as bad or worse. And you got to get ready. You got to defend yourself. You got to speak for yourself. And uh, so he said, I'm doing this because I love you. <laughs> and, uh, so by the second year, we just adored him. There was a group of us that found his house and snuck up and pulled a trick on him for his birthday where one person walked up and knocked on the door and we were hiding in the bushes and Bill answers the door and like, oh. like, oh, hello. It's like, hi, I was in the neighborhood. I heard it's your birthday. Happy birthday. It's like, well, come on in. And then like three more of us go up to the door, knock, knock, knock. So he's like, <laughs> all right, what's going on? I know you're out there. So we, that so was we, my, uh, that was my question too. My question was, you know, as you're telling the story, I just kept thinking, is this really, or is he, is what I call a, a hard, a hard ass with a heart of gold, you know, someone who's just so, but they, really, but they, they do these crazy it, things, but then yeah, go ahead. Go it ahead. was, I, what you're saying is right. I mean, there was a heart of gold underneath, but, but we didn't realize at the beginning, but when it wasn't just show, there was so much knowledge underneath of it. And all of us yeah. compared notes later and went, not just his personality, but the the things he forced us to think about and to get ingrained into our process of how to design things uh, really added up to, to something valuable that we could take with us and go, oh, I'm composing a song. I have to think about pacing. So what Bill Moore said in visual design applies to the audio textures I'm doing or writing a story or anything or just doing a piece of animation at all applied. And he 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 so appreciated that we pulled that trick on him and he and his partner at the time uh invited us in and showed us around and he, he had a museum quality african mask collection that museums wanted to get their hands on and on the second year we just every time we'd come into the room there was a big smile on our faces and we were not intimidated at all and he was so funny he was like he was like well at least i have the freshman <laughs> get scared of me <laughs> he would chain smoke <laughs> so Jerry, let me let me ask you so when you yeah, had Jerry. your um i mean so would you consider this teacher the the main driving force to get you where where you are today because it seems you know, like a lot a lot of a lot of kids had had that one teacher that um you know it's they're either really temperamental really um they they, they want to push you but not really push you and it's just depending on the person. So what, was he kind of the driving force? I would say yes. We had a good set of teachers. Uh, Elmer Plummer was there. Uh, Tihi Ken O'Connor, who came back to Color Style on the Brave Little Toaster with me and back to Neverland with me, um, was one of our teachers. Uh, uh, but and, and Jack Hanna, of course. But uh, yeah, Bill Moore was the most impactful and I think, uh, yeah, all of us comparing notes, I, I think really came to the same conclusion. And I was so, I was so honored that later on, I came back a few years later and he told me that he had kept one of my design projects to show students as an example of somebody who paid attention and learned 
and did it well. So I, I was glad that I had graduated into uh, him having a, a piece of show and tell for me that he thought was was worthy and measured up. But after two years of that teaching, I you know I and some of my other students didn't finish CalArts. Uh, after two years, Disney drafted four of us to drop out of school and just start working full time at the studio. So Brad Bird and John Musker and Doug Luffler and me were pulled out of school after two years and just given a job at Disney Feature Animation. And they they uh, pulled Henry Selick in from the experimental animation program uh, at the same year. So the five of us went trundling over there. So I never got the flavor of the what it would have been like to do the first the whole full years, four years with with Bill Moore or anyone else. Uh, at, you know, most of our classmates did finish the full four years and talked about what the whole program man, uh, amounted to. But uh, for us, it was uh, a flavor and an influence and then boom, we were gone halfway through. But so this is what I was talking about. So this is the first class of CalArts. So I, I'm in, I'm on the left with the embroidered shirt looking all too coy. <laughs> but there's uh what a Daryl handsome Benster. group of people so uh you know on the floor harry sabin is sitting down uh john uh, uh, john musker is on the right sitting on the floor doug yeah. leffler above him uh, brad bird smiling above john musker wow. uh lassiter is at the top looking like he's going to strangle brett uh <laughs> yeah. and cicero standing upper left wow so anyway it was a whole that's cool wow so that was the that was the a113 class which it's why I made the uh, the master's apartment uh, A113 when we got uh, as an artist. I'm, like I was super drawn in all the f like pictures in the background. I'm like what is what what is that? I'm like yeah, I like drawing. Sense. I found a couple of those originals in a portfolio this year, and I was going through and found some that were up on the wall in that picture. It was one of my life drawings. So, but then working at the studio, and that was like that was a dream. Oh my gosh! And then so I jumped in right in the middle. So I, I'll just hit you with a, a quick summary and then you can touch on anything in particular you want. But when I went in, they were just finishing uh, Pete's Dragon. They were in the crunch. They needed help on final cleanup. Uh, they liked the way I drew. They drafted me to go in and help them with that. So I was working with the combination live action animation scenes. And then I was uh, animator on the small one. Uh, we got uh, elevated to full animator status. Ed Anson told me it was the quickest path from start date to full-fledged animator at the time. I don't know if it's happened since, but he said it was the quickest path to, to that that they'd had to that time. And it was probably due to a couple of years beforehand of working with Eric before I even went to CalArts. So I'm sure that gave me a leg up in that department. And then I was an animator on the Fox and the Hound. And then between Fox and the Hound and Cauldron, I jumped, I was the only animator that jumped up onto uh, Tron and I became a computer <laughs> image choreographer. So. Uh, so there's oh, a lot of stuff there. Three fantastic. All these right words, there. all these words. Tron, Fox in the Hat. They're, bring, they're bringing back all my feelings, man. The Black Cauldron. Oh, Gosh. I love them all. Okay. So that was a chapter. And any anything you want to talk about in that chapter, uh, feel free. To and I think that's a wonderful yeah. place. Hey, y'all, like this is a great place for Matt and Barry and Lindsay and Skipper J. Jason, you're you're here. You just and Skipper. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jump we come. Hey, everyone. He's Sorry, here. I'm late. Hello. Oh, no worries. Howdy. But if y'all have questions, hey, let's open it. Uh, 
Jerry, are you okay with that now? Is this okay? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a chunk. And then after that is diving into theme parks and everything else. Uh, oh, we love the chunks. The, this was the pre theme park era. <laughs> we love the chunks though. If you got more chunks <laughs> to give us, give us more chunks. Cause you know, I, I, I always say this on the cast story shapes life. So yep. the way when we have guests on, they tell their stories, they tell their narratives, they're, you know, people that listen back to these, you know, to these stories, it, it actually, by listening to like your story and it, it actually shapes the way that we live our lives. And so I, I, I don't take these things. We don't right. take these things for granted whatsoever. These are powerful stories and we love right. listening. So any well, chunks you got. Yeah. Jerry, Jerry, let me ask this way. because, uh, Jeff won't Jeff won't bring it up, but uh, Jeff has a relative that uh, voiced in uh, Fox and the Hound. Oh yeah, yeah. And so how how I mean, were you able that. to meet people like uh, Pat Buttram or uh, Pearl Bailey? Um, were you able to meet any of them, or were you behind the scenes of that? Yeah, we we'd hang out uh, while they were recording, and and uh, it was fun for the animators to listen in and get a feel for them. And uh, yeah, and then I wound up working on a number of characters on Dinky and Boomer, and and a lot on the Hunter himself, and on Todd as an adult, and 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 as a cub. Uh, so and I just somebody gave me it's called a draft of the movie where they have every. It's an internal document at Disney where every single shot in the movie is accounted for who worked on everything, animation, visual effects, uh, what the dialogue is, how many feet and frames it is. It used to be measured that way back in the day instead of how many digital frames. And, uh, and, so I, I, and I did 56 scenes in the, in the film. Wow. So, and I with all the characters. Jerry mentioned that. I forgot Fox and that. Yeah, Pat Buttram was my great, great, He's like a cousin. I never, I never actually met him, but I grew up with. Yeah, so he I got me into voice Pat stuff. Patrick. He was, I'm Abel Sheriff of Nottingham. You know, he, I kind of <laughs> grew, grew up doing voice. those sort of like <laughs> voices, I, but but just to have him is like, oh, that's yeah, that's family. The that's family. You know, just that <laughs> kin, kin to me. And then that kind of got me in the goofy voice because it started like molding from. Well, I'm mean to worse. Well, I mean, man, you know, yeah. and there, there's, there's a sort of, anyways, I just, I yeah, just. And I, and boy, I'll tell you, he was one of those voices that drew me in before I wound up there, you know, listening to the films prior to that, uh, prior to going in, he was one of them where I went, man, where'd they find that guy? I know. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. We have we, a weird thing like in our family. I don't know if, I don't know if it's true. It could be fabricated, but like in our family, it was like, uh, there's just a story that you know once upon a time he fell as a kid he fell on a, a broomstick and yeah. that's he got last where he got his <laughs> I don't know if that's true you know families make stuff up sometimes right, but right. but anyways but could yeah. be but at Fox and the Hound just one one I mean I, that's one of those things that those one it's one of those movies hey I'll I'll say like Tron I'm gonna say Tron I've watched Tron many of times and it just i don't know why it just gets better it holds up it's and and the it, it's funny i just yesterday my wife and i went and spent time with donald kushner and his wife who was yeah. my producer on tron and um you know he's he has, still has some of the original art up in his house and uh it's just yeah it was a it was a moment in history a lot we were experimenting big time yeah when you look back, I'm going to turn it over to everybody else in a second, yes. but 
here's my question is like when you look back at that art because it is art tron tron is art it was it was oh what, what do you, you know what, what it was uh i think a lot of people misunderstood how it was even happening uh the the academy at the time ignored what we did and would pay it no attention because they thought we pushed a button and the film came out they thought a machine made the movie it was so handcrafted you can't believe it it most of the things people think were done by the computer were not it was done with mini passes on camera stands with burning different light passes in and stuff with holdout cell mats and things like that and and then on the in the animation there was no when i would animate something in the computer there was no move from a to b and in between it please computer and here's a path of action none of that even existed all it could do was if you built an object and you told the camera where to be and you made a light source, it would render one object in one spot. That's yeah. it. So you had to think in terms of stop motion. So you had to do the math for every frame singly. So you had to do one frame math and then yeah. you had to go, where's it going to be in the next frame? Do the math. And so there was even like A to B in between was not a thing. Uh, so we, so it was so handcrafted. And uh, when we look back on it, it was that's that was our feeling like zero automation. We were a lot of automation was invented because of what everyone was challenged with uh, yeah. during that process. But it was in the days there was there was no mouse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. it was typing on a keyboard and there was vector frames that would come up singly. You couldn't even watch something move on the computer screen. There's a pretty famous photo of Bill Croyer and I looking at a screen where a single vector frame has come up through a phone modem. And what we used to do is take a Polaroid of the screen and take, carry that for Lisberger to look at. That was reviewing things. Then we, <laughs> we of course had then, uh, had film made of the scenes. As we would finish the scene, we would see what it amounted to. Would be written onto VistaVision film, and we'd go project that on a soundstage on a rear screen. And I felt very much like I was back in my preteen and early teen days with the rear screen projector showing Disney cartoon parades to families. <laughs> I was now on a rear screen projector looking at our footage from, from Tron, and we could walk right up to the screen since it was rear screen projection and look at details and stuff. And Smithsonian came out to look at what we were doing, and it was considered a really crazy experiment, but things like the MCP face, like all of that was I had done drawings by hand with rulers and and protractors and stuff on paper. And then it was wrapped around the cylinder and stuff. But, uh, you know, everything was just very handcrafted. And it, it was funny because most of my classmates thought I, and and people that I worked with then on Pete's Dragon and Small One and Fox and the Hound thought I was nuts <laughs> to go work <laughs> on that. What are you doing? I think, I think they had the feeling that it was, you know, the computer was going to rob us of, uh, of a job. And I kept telling them, no, that it is the computer isn't doing the art. It's another canvas. It's another brush for us to use. We right. can train it. And, um, and actually Lisberger said at one of the reunions we've We've gone to a number of reunions together, of course, all of us that worked on it and just big screenings and, and wonderful fans that come out. And Lisberger said at one of them that at the time he was very aware that the whole idea of computers and what they were going to amount to was pretty 
dicey. A lot of people saw the computer itself as kind of an evil force that could be used for <laughs> ill. And it's like, oh, that's a military thing. And, and he just said, it would be really interesting to sort of subvert the process by taking a bunch of artists at a time when computers are just figuring out what to be. They're just growing up and put it in the hands of a bunch of artists and, and have them reshape it into their own likeness during a time where it's being born. And so that it, it becomes through their influence, more of an artistic thing and not the, isn't, isn't that timely? What a timely conversation that was. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and now we're at a, at a similar threshold and, uh, and I'm also as aggressively involved now as I was then, but, uh, but anyway, then, then before the film was over, uh, people like John Lasseter were coming in and, peering over our shoulders and going, oh, this looks really interesting. What's happening? So uh, we introduced a, a lot of people to that. Well, what I think is lovely about Tron, there is a cohesive aesthetic. And that cohesive aesthetic, as much as you've used the word um, experiment, this is what I think makes experiments great, is when there is, there is a, uh, an, like, I'll call it an umbrella of a vision, a, a story, a world, something, colors. It could just be a color scheme <laughs> that is cohesive and it just adds to the beauty and, and something that resonates in your art form for all time, space, history. That's Tron. Okay, that's well, Tron. Mo Mobius and Peter Lloyd and, and um, Sid Mead, people like that were really influencing what, what we were going to attempt to match with the computer. Yeah. And... Uh, I'll go back to some stuff on Fox and the Hound in a minute, but but when I started Tron, I went up and I knocked on their door and, it, and everybody else was being paid to wait for the next film to happen. And I just saw Tron coming in. And I was like, I, 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 I want, I want. <laughs> so I went and knocked on their door and said, can, can I help? And they're like, uh, yeah, we definitely are gonna need storyboarding. And once the computer starts, we're gonna have to figure out how those shots are gonna happen and everything. So yeah, uh, and Bill Croyer was on board from, he, he had left Disney and had come back with Lisberger after they did Animal Olympics together. And so I jumped onto the project, but I had no place to sit. It was just crowded and it was upstairs. It was not down in the first floor where we were doing animation. And it was kind of people that just crowded into a space and were starting to work on it together. And, and Mobius was there, Jean Giraud, who's an amazing, amazing artist. And uh, I was looking around for a place and he goes, please pull up a chair. This will be your spot. <laughs> I was like, what? And he's like, yes, pull up a chair. So I, I actually sat at a flat table facing Mobius until he was done. It was like the two of us worked together face to face every day. And I would just watch these magic come pouring out of his pin. And I would try to cover my drawings when I was working <laughs> for mine. But he, he taught me pin blending techniques back when we were using Pintel markers. I'm sure it was all toxic as hell, but, <laughs> but he, he would talk about, you know, you get the different values and hues and line them up before you start. Cause you want to have them ready before anything dries out and work on it wet. And so he gave me a, a bunch of pointers and, and was just great. And then as we finished uh, production boards, cause I was boarding for the work with the live actors first. And then segued into storyboarding for the, so there were only two of us storyboarding and supervising for all the computer scenes that happened. Croyer and I split it and, and did all the 
had responsibility for all the computer scenes and working with triple I and Magi and Richard Taylor, who was an amazing, amazing genius. But we, you know, but rewinding a, a bit, uh, one of the reasons I was so starved for something like Tron is, you know, all of us in my generation really came in in love with Disney, the whole legacy of Disney. Uh, and we looked back at something like Snow White and how it it disrupted the movie industry. I mean, it was a big disruptive thing that happened when he screened Snow White for a, a theater filled with adults, the who's yeah. who of Hollywood. And these grown-ups cried at a cartoon. You know, that was, that was a game changer. And uh, we came in and the veterans like Eric Larson and Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson and Milt Call and Mark Davis were encouraging us to be part of that next disruption, to, to take our own new visions. Because they would say, and they literally told us this, like, we're, we're flattered that you're getting out our drawings and flipping them to see what we did in Pinocchio and Bambi and whatever. But we studied life and animals and friends and strangers and and we brought that into our animation we weren't studying other animators and so your work will be it's most fresh and vibrant if you do the same thing it's like you can learn some principles from us but please make your own observations about life and bring them in and so they were encouraging us to be uh, to be as disruptive in a wonderful creative way as they had been with with snow white oh they came in wanting to do that right man. now Okay. Now, back when Brad and I were still in school, and, and we had met and just became best buddies at CalArts, and my touchstone had been Eric Larson in my high school years. Brad's, it turns out, was Milt Call had been hit, hit touchstone as he was in high school finishing and was getting ready to, to come into CalArts. Uh, so we would sometimes, uh, during college, go down to visit the studio, and we'd drop in on our mentors. And while we were there seeing Milt one day, uh, Frank and Ollie were still animating on the rescuers, right? Wow. Oh. And they they duck their head out in the hallway and they see Brad and me and they're like, hey guys, you wanna see something? We're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we go scurrying down to the room and they take us in, they close the door and they have on the Moviola a sequence that they've just animated together. And it's all in pencil test form, right? Mm -hmm. And it was Penny, she goes down in the cave and, uh, you know, Medusa's yelling at her and where's a diamond and stuff and the seawater is rushing in. And so uh, they they put Brad and, and me in front of the movie, I'll play that scene. And it comes to the part where the seawater pulls Penny down out of sight and she's gone and she's gone. She's still gone. <laughs> And we're like, oh, and then bah, she comes out and grabs breath and is just frantically swimming. Yeah. And Brad and I go, oh, my God, that was so hair raising. And, and so they we finish watching it. And uh, Frank and Ollie go, well, we're glad you like it. You're probably the last two people in the world that are going to see that because it's getting cut. And we went, what? And he said, yeah, Willie says it's too scary. And we're like, what do you mean too scary? That was dramatic as hell. And yeah. In, Bambi's mom gets killed. Pinocchio, the, the first time I saw that film, I, I went by a, we were going by a drive-in theater coming home. 
And, you know, we hadn't been into a re real theater when I was a kid. I told you in the community that we weren't doing that, but we right. went an overpass. My dad was driving. I was a kid in the back seat. Uh, we're, we, as we go over an overpass, we see a big screen of a drive-in theater at night. And it is playing the scene of Monster of the Whale from Pinocchio. And at the end, and, and I tell dad, please, please stop, pull over. So he puts on his blinkers and pulls over. And I watched that scene. And at the end, Pinocchio is face down, drowned in the, in the shallows of the ocean. And I said, please, please, dad, can we please go to a movie? <laughs> so he like, that was a moment for our family that later that night, it was like, well, it's late. It's a drive-in. Nobody will catch us. <laughs> go. Uh, we went to the late show uh, in the drive-in theater and I saw Pinocchio, but that moment had stuck with me. So we're telling Frank and Ollie, you have a legacy of facing those moments of drama in life and, yes. and they're wonderful. It's part of what you do. And what do you mean too scary? And they said, hey, don't tell us, tell Wooly. And, and Brad and I go, we will. And so they like yeah. picked up the phone and the guy, he said, hey, Wooly, Brad and Jerry would like to come up and talk to you. So us college punks still in our first year go up and we plead with Wooly to let Frank and Ollie's scene be in the movie. And uh, Willie was nice enough, but he was kind of patronizing and <laughs> saying, you know, uh, you know, Bible Belt letters and stuff, yeah, you know, playing and everything. Uh, but we, but we said, but they love you because of what you've done, and you've already done that. That's your legacy. They fell in love with that. So anyway, we were trying to reason with him, but we, as as time passed, we realized it's like we were we were trying to be as creatively disruptive in a good way that as Snow White had been. Our veterans were encouraging us to do it, but they were already in, were encountering resistance. Right. So they were being stopped from going, they would get up to the edge of another impactful moment and go, no, 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 soften it down, make it right. kind of gentle. Like don't know rough edges anymore. It's like, but it's full of rough edges. <laughs> yeah. But when you survive those rough edges and you're there's yes. redemption, that's that's when the magic you feel even more glory at the end. Well, and, well it uh, is, and I and I hate to. Uh, I mean, when I think of that that era of Disney and and those movies and oh, when when did the Fox and the Hound come out? What what year? You know. Uh, gosh, was it eighty? Something okay, like so that. that was a little later. So I mean, but I I think of like Anyone? I think of the rescuers. I think of my favorite, of course, one of mine, Robin Hood. You know, I I think of I think of I don't know what what do they call them? The Bronze Age. But one of the one thing that the Bronze Age, if that's if I'm accurate, they had it had they they still had heart. So you can talk about whatever it was about animation, but I'll tell you this: it was like when Robin Hood went deep in the in mm -hmm. the water and he didn't i didn't know as a little kid is he gonna pop out is he mm -hmm. okay i don't know i don't know uh fox yeah. and the count you know or um or goodness like uh, the rescuers you know i mean there there were real stakes there, there were some were stakes, stakes and i and i think when brad and i pled the case with frank and ollie i i think woolly relented and left some of it in I think he, you know, he shortened it somewhat, but it, but he, I, I think he gave them a little slack because we had gone up and pled the case. Yeah. But but when we, we realized that there was resistance to being as disruptive as as they had been back in the day, and we thought, well, if the veterans are getting resistance as they're following their the same impulses they've had this whole time as storytellers, and they're getting resistance, what's our chance to really? 
make a difference and to, to, uh, to you know, especially in the way we, we had all gone to see Star Wars. And, you know, that to us, when we went to see the first Star Wars, the first day, and we came out and went, that's disruption. That was like, that was like the equivalent of what Walt did with Snow White. It's like, George did that with Star Wars. It's like, yeah. and we felt like we want to do stuff at Disney that is right now alongside Lucas, Spielberg, Coppola, mm. like, and Disney. Like we should all be exhilaratingly telling stories together. And we felt like we're ready. You know, the, the young yeah. generation was coming in inspired by all of it as like love Disney. We're inspired by something like Star Wars and just went, Disney will now disrupt again and go beyond what people think they can do and belong in that, that group. Uh, so that was our, that was our dream. And when we kept getting resistance and, and which included, I won't go into big detail here. We can come back later if you want, but yeah. I was able to, to do a sequence direction for a, a potential opening scene for the Fox and the Hound that did have more, uh, more heart to it and, and uh, committed to the fact that the, the it's an orphan. Um, and in the same way in Bambi, where you, you really feel the, the stakes of this child with no mother, uh, which as you, as you feel more sympathy for it uh, going forward. But anyway, that was shot down just like, like yeah. Frank and Ollie scene had been shot down and yeah. they, it's like, no, 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 it's too emotional. Yeah. Um, so we kept getting that pushback and we did as much as we could. And, the, and I must say the bear fight scene survived without getting softened just because we ran out of time and and you know glenn Keane and john musker were doing the lion sheriff stuff on that and i'll tell you if there had been another year on the picture that would have been watered down too but but it wasn't because we ran out of time and uh and i actually jumped when i was done with all my animation i jumped on to clean up for the bear fight scene because i wanted to help protect what glenn had animated he would animate with these you know i'm i'm a wrist and finger animator he's like a whole shoulder and torso animator he's like he's into it makes these big fat lines and it's great but you look at those pencil tests and if somebody comes in with a, to do the final cleanup cleanup line there is a lot of room for interpretation across those big fat lines and so we were afraid that it would get watered down unless an animator went in to clean it up so i i volunteered and went in and and really tried to see like Where's the force going in in this yeah. moment? Is it is, should I favor with my final clean line the inside of this line or the outside of this line? And where is That's it going? Awesome. So really put in a lot of work there. But we finally felt like okay, maybe Tron to me felt like that could be disruptive. That could be the like something that Disney good trouble, in. good trouble. You're getting into good trouble. Yeah, that it's could like, be disruptive in a good way, and yeah. maybe start the ball rolling towards that. And then uh, another chapter I'll hit on is after I had those Disney feature animation years and the uh, Tron year years, Brad Bird and I tried to get the uh, Will Eisner's The Spirit off the ground as an animated feature uh, with Gary Kurtz producing. He 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 produced American Graffiti, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. And he looked at pencil tests that we had done. We did a trailer of coming attractions for our feature we wanted to do. And we just thought if we can't keep pursuing, our veterans are telling us, shoot for the moon, be disruptive, go for it creatively. But we couldn't do it in those walls at the time. We thought well, we're going to have to protect the Disney flame. 
we're going to have to go find some other fortress. And Gary Kurtz got it. He looked at our stuff and went, that's a film noir, entire family feature animated film. Uh, I get it. Like, this will be amazing. So, and he embraced us and we went, okay, we have an angel investor now who does want to see feature animation join the ranks of Spielberg, Coppola and Lucas. Like here's Gary Kurtz produces for them and he gets it. So, uh, so actually Brad and I spent five years trying to get that off the ground. And part of that time overlapped just before I left Disney. But some people thought, oh, you got tired of Disney and left Disney. It's like, no, we were as inspired as ever. The veterans were telling us, we believe in you, keep going for it. And it's like, we're being watered down. Yeah. If you, if you have to find another place where they won't water you down, maybe you can reignite the flame and bring it back. And that, that's yeah, a TED talk right there. It's like, well, we, we felt like when Steve Jobs gave Lassiter a fortress, yeah. you know, a lot of people in history went, oh, it was a new thing that started and it like was something to yeah. compete with Disney. It's like all of us who went to school together, we were all in that, you know, Lassiter yeah. was in that, that first photo with us at CalArts. We all understood that as protecting the Disney flame. It's like it took Steve Jobs and his fortress to keep them from blowing out the special magical stuff. And instead of getting the note, water it down every day, (laughs) they were getting the innovate, be be fresh. So so, uh, we celebrated that and we did think of it as reigniting the flame when he was able to to bring stuff back into Disney. And all, all of us sort of had that trek into Disney yes. and then out of Disney trying to protect that force. And then all of us came back in and I have had multiple orbits in and out of Disney and yeah. including after that 22 attractions for the parks, oh. uh, which everybody here is a seething in the mouth because they want to ask you questions. I okay. guarantee I could see it on their faces. We got, we got, yeah, it's, and, it, it, it's, it's a big and, thing. We, we, you know, because we don't want to gloss over, you know why uh the black cauldron didn't do so well but let's go ahead and uh let's go ahead and hear about all your uh accomplishments in wait, wait, wait. can, I, can I just give you a quick answer i interrupt i i know yeah. i'm late to the podcast in general but um yeah. i have one question about the the black cauldron yeah that, that missing 14 minutes the katzenberg came in and cut out is that in a vault somewhere are we going to see that one day because i think if people saw that footage cut back in it would change the perception of that film. It might. I do not know. I like Brad and I had uh, we're, we're off in Northern California being paid every day to follow our creative instincts for several years from gosh, uh, 82 to 85. Uh, Gary had us up doing that. So we were we were no longer around what was going on with Cauldron. And um, I just when we first came in and we we were hot off being excited about Star Wars. And we looked at Mel Shaw's development art for the Black Cauldron. We were like, oh my God, that could be the film. Like the Black Cauldron could be the the Star Wars of Disney. Yeah. Um, and then when we kept seeing the water it down note, the that's too emotional note again and again and again, we just went, well, how can it be? And, and sure enough, there's things that if you look at his concept art compared to what finally was done, um, they lost so much of the true vitality that was in in mel's mm. work that was truly inspirational at the beginning uh, so I, I i i mourn uh that it wasn't able to just be given the the elbow room to to grow up it, it was ready it's like mel's art had laid a beautiful path 
and the young group and the veterans. I want to emphasize that because a lot of people have said, oh, the, you know, the veterans ran out of steam and it, everything got kind of tame. It's like, no, they didn't. The veterans were still as rambunctious as ever and as innovative as ever and learning every day and encouraging us with all this stuff. Um, it was more the, the mid-level, mid-management, middle management and stuff like that that were not the, the remnants of the nine old men uh, where a lot of those the uh, tone it down, water it down, don't make anything too emotional or too scary or too happy or too, it's like, oh, yeah. it's really average. It's like th those notes were not coming from the veterans. Uh, so if if the veterans, if people like Eric, who Eric was originally supposed to direct the small one, if they had been left in positions to influence things for keeping those those forces going and all of us young people coming in ready to go, I just think of what Cauldron could have been uh it, it certainly was poised to be a dynamic uh project it made a fantastic attraction that that nobody saw none of us saw over in tokyo that's a right yeah i i did not uh i didn't get to go see it i i, I installed something else in tokyo but i i didn't get to see that all right i'm gonna steer this there's 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 so many ways we could, could go i know <laughs> i'm like i'm gonna steer the conversation and then, but I would love to go back, if that's okay, yeah. Gary, to your story and your and your world and all these and just free flowing. But but I I know right now we got we got Matt, we got uh, Tara and Lindsay and Skip Skipper Jay. You already talked, so you're out. But um, <laughs> you're but allowed. We, another... we have these these people that would love to talk to you and and, and meet you and just maybe ask a question. Sure. And so let's let's start with uh, uh, Matt. All right, so there's a million questions that I want. We're going to have to have you back because, like you said uh, before we were talking, uh, before we started recording, that there's you've done so much. But I shared my story with you about Brave Little Toaster, and I I can't move on past that yet. I have to get yeah. one of those questions in for you. And so when I watched that movie, so it came out in 87. That's the year I was born. So I watched it a few years later. I remember going to to rent it. And it was it was so different from the cartoons that I had seen before and even kind of since. And, mm. you know, the stories you're telling us, I'm starting to pick out like, oh, maybe that's an inspiration and maybe that's where that's coming from. Because in Brave Toaster, some of those scenes, the nightmare scene, the, the cars getting crushed, the like these things were not for kids, but at the same time, kids could relate to them because the abandonment part, like there was a that was a time in my life where we were going through something like that. So that mm -hmm. still resonated with me, even though I might not have realized it at the time. Right. And I just, I, I have to ask you, what drew you to that project? Like what, what made you want to do that? Okay, and that's uh, a lot of layers to that. The, uh, the the first thing is, you know, when when I was working on uh, the spirit with Brad and uh, Gary Kurtz. And by the way, John Musker was pitching in, Glenn Keane was pitching in, Rob Minkoff was pitching in, a lot of people were helping out, Harry Sabin, Daryl Rooney, uh, Daryl Van Sitters. So there were uh, more people than Brad and me trying to get the spirit made. And they were sending drawings, they were moonlighting for us, they helped, helped put the trailer together. Uh, but at the time, we were driven by just something we had realized and was was also told to us overtly by the veterans that we admired and that was 
they said we never made a children's film in our life. We don't make kid films. We make films for everyone. And they said sometimes we appeal to the kid in us as an adult, but we never made a kid's film. And and there were certain ones like Milk Call absolutely hated focus groups. He just said, you know, if if research shows you that some group might like it, but you don't when you're making it, you don't really have proof anybody loves it. But if you love something while you're making it, you have proof somebody loves it. <laughs> and so it's like, depend on that and try to appeal to every person at every age. So it's truly the broadest audience story you could tell. Um, kids aren't left out, but it's not made for them. It's made for every age. And it speaks directly to an adult, directly to a teen, directly to a senior, directly to a kid in different ways, but try to hit the everyone can relate story. And so we were doing that with the spirit. And we we really felt like that was going to be the big disruptive game changer. Uh, after f reaching five years of pursuing that, partly uh, in late hours while I was at Disney, partly full time, uh, moving up north to live with Gary Kurtz and working in his San Rafael offices up there. Uh, ultimately, we hit this we hit this brick wall where studios would get a screenplay that Brad and I had worked on. Uh, and Will Eisner had, we had gone to meet with Will Eisner and he gave us the rights for a dollar. Said, I like what you guys are doing. Warner Brothers is knocking at my door. I'm gonna say no to them. You guys understand my work better than they do. So gave us a break. Gary was supporting us, but we'd hit this brick wall when we'd hand the script to a studio and they'd read the script and go, great, let's make this movie. And then they'd find out it was animated and go, well, animation is for kids. Why would you do that? And nobody will come see it. And we're like, no, animation isn't for kids. Yes, it is. It's like a babysitting tool. We're like, no, it's like, it's have not, you seen not. any of the Disney films? And uh, but anyway, they would say, if you make this on live action, we'll make it. We love the script. But if you insist on it being animated, forget it. You know, so they, they would just insist that animation was for kids and they weren't in the business to do kids movies. And they weren't sure why Gary Kurtz was involved since he was doing these uh, Star Wars things. Um, but Gary got it. It's like, no, this belongs with Star Wars. This is, this is that thing. So that was like just percolating in us. And we felt like this is, can happen. It's going to happen. It's boy, it's going to change everything. And then it didn't where we just kept getting the no. And finally, Gary was going through bankruptcy where there were a lot of things going on in his life that were stressing his situation. And as he was going through bankruptcy, he was still paying us, but I, I went into Gary and just said, I know you could do with one less check to write every week. Uh, so I'm going to bow out. If we ever get the spirit going, I'm back in a heartbeat, right. but until then, uh, I'm going to pursue some other things and I wish you well, and I hope you get back on your feet soon. The week, the same week that I let people know I was available, Tom Wilhite called and said, you got to fly down to LA. I got a thing. And so he called me down, he put the novella, The Brave Little Toaster in front of me, and he said, this was maybe going to happen at Disney. Lasseter wanted to make a film. He wanted to make it in, in CG. You know, you guys opened the doors to that with Tron. He got excited by it. as uh, pitching it. Uh, there's a whole bunch of rough edges going on politically and everything else. He's gone. Um, people were just going to let this novella die. But it was written by Thomas Deesh. He's a science fiction author. And so 
even though it has this kid sounding name, it was written by a science fiction author with a wry sense of knowingness about it that appeals to adults who read his science fiction novels. They pick that up and read it too and go like, oh, this is like a, a, nod, a tip of the hat to, yeah. to like the, the, um, the incredible journey story where the animal, you know, the dogs and cats travel miles to find their owner and stuff like that. But it's, so it's a, a wry adult sensibility to, to this thing that seems like it would be for kids. He goes, look, it's, everybody's telling me it'd make a terrific short and they don't think it should be a feature. And I believe it could be a feature, but it has a lot of story development needs to happen and somebody needs to write it and somebody needs to direct it. I think you're the person to do all three. Um, and I know you're starving to do something different. You just to, for five years have been trying to get the spirit off the ground. This week you're available. Uh, I can give you this and what I can't give you is money. I have very little because uh, this is going to be a very low budget indie feature. But what I can give you is a promise that you have creative freedom. So develop the story, write it, direct it. This is your movie. Uh, so he really, and so I said yes. My wife, Rebecca, who wound up being a directing animator on Brave Little Toaster, when I first gave her the news, thought I was nuts. <laughs> like, the Brave Little Toaster, you're trying to make the spirit and now you're going to make some kindergarten movie? <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. It's going to be different. We're just going to make a good movie. It doesn't have to be a kid's movie. So, uh, so anyway, uh, bottom line, Matt, is it's the most creative freedom I've ever had. Yeah. And they kept the promise. I was able to shake the etch a sketch and start over, reshape the story. Yeah. Um, and I, I have a box that has 80% of the original storyboard sketches from me, from Joe Ramp, from Daryl Rooney, from Alex Mann um, for the film. Every single shot was just like from the ground up starting over yeah. again making the film and uh, another critical thing about the tone you're talking about where you said you realized that it you know it wasn't for kids um but kids was, were welcome to experience oh, kids it. loved it uh, yeah is, we definitely it I was one of them. To, yeah. <laughs> yeah so imagine us we here we are in our 20s and just had like five years of trying to make the spirit go away so I was starving. And so when I dove into it, I wasn't there to like, oh, here's a job to tide me over. It's like, finally, I'm going to get to make a movie. I'm going to get to make the decisions about how the story goes and what happens and what every shot is and who I cast in it and what, which take I use. And right. it's, I'm finally going to get to make something and nobody's going to be saying, water it down, please. And don't make it too impactful, please. Yeah. So I'm like, finally, I can follow what Eric Larson and Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson and Milt Call said, go for it, do it. And I went, okay. I have like no money and the one sort of restriction I has is, is it has to have this title <laughs> which sounds like it's for kids but you know what it's like let's take the material and see like if we had freedom what could it be how, how can we like in a short time turn it into something special so two and a quarter million for the whole 90 minute film and um worked for six months here then took a group of a dozen people with me and we lived for six months in Taiwan making it there and then six months of post-production back here in the U.S. again. And a big part of, I think, why people could connect with it as well as they did, in addition to, you know, I'm, I mean, I just really felt in the storytelling and filmmaking, I wanted to go full tilt into having the characters believe their own world. 
You know, it's like when they're sinking yep. in the quicksand, yep. I didn't want any yep. winks yep. and nudges like, oh, don't worry, somebody will rescue them. And it'll just end, <laughs> it's no worries. I went, no, you, as far as you're concerned, this is the end. Yep. And when Blanky said, you know, the toaster is pleading like, untie yourself, please. Yeah. Uh, and he says, I'm not scared, but he has the quiver in his voice. It's like, the reason he's saying that is because he knows he's gonna die, but he doesn't want Toaster to feel so bad. You know, there's so it's like, those are serious so moments. Much. They, yeah, they there's are. so many moments in that movie, just like that, where there's serious moments where as a kid, like I said, the, the whole abandonment thing, that was something that kind of, I, I recognize even as a kid because of my personal yeah. experience. But then as you watch it, as you get older, all those things you're talking about. And it's, yeah. you know, it's interesting how you said, um, they were thinking of doing it in CGI, kind of like Toy Story, which comes later. But mm -hmm. watching Brave Little Toaster and watching something like Toy Story, you, I personally, I'm sure a lot of people feel this way. They forget that it's a toaster and a vacuum, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a Buzz Lightyear doll. These are mm -hmm. people. It's you. It's people you know. And I just personally yeah. want to say thank you for making that movie the way you did because it means a lot like to me and it's a it's a great movie. Thank you so much for that. Well, thanks for everything you've said and uh it touches my heart that it connected with you and you know, we just felt in making it that we wanted the characters to believe their world. We cared about the characters. To us this wasn't a job. This was finally a chance to tell a story. And we were doing it in that manner that they had instructed us, like, believe in your own movie. Don't do it because research says some yeah. group will like it. Only do the part that you trust and, and cling to that. And we were doing that. And, and, and part of that that made a huge difference was in the voice work. And, and Jeff, you can relate to this being a, a voice-centric person, too, um, is the when I had written uh, first few pages and was ready to start bringing voice people in to, to audition. I had a reading and I just hated what I was hearing. I just, uh, uh, it was, it was my own words on the page and I just hated it. <laughs> it was yeah. like, it yeah. sounded so goofy and awful and childish. And I went, I know that the, that's, it isn't the writing. Cause in my head, when I was writing, it didn't sound like this. And what was happening is that the people coming in and there were some, there were some excellent people who had great careers but the ch creative choice they were making is oh this must be for kids so i will sound really patronizing and yeah. obvious and okay. and not take the acting seriously so right. i was just depressed right. and then joe ramp bless his heart he said well i'm taking some classes over at the groundlings improv theater just to kind of brush up on on my you know just just being aware of acting when i'm animating so i'm just trying to improvise with them and they have some cool people you want to go listen to them. And I went, yes, yes, I do. I'm so, I'm so depressed hearing the, 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 the usual suspects. So we went there and I, and it was a, it was a comes the dawn moment for me because instead of taking something and trying to make it as outlandish as possible, I think that's what the people that came in first were trying to do. It's like, oh, I have to, I have to push this and make it as crazy as possible. So they were a time there, toaster, you know, and it's just be awful. Oh, yeah. Um, the people at the Groundlings were doing the opposite. The people in the audience, and this was yeah. adult, it's like night adult edgy comedy, oh, but right. they would take crazy ideas and make them plausible. That's so right. Somebody, so it's not voice acting. I, it's Bill, I saw this from Bill Farmer. It's not voice acting, it's voice acting. Yes. So it's voice acting, it's voice acting. 
Yes, and, and the acting is is always there, and you're either yes, acting yes. your whole body or your voice. And he and so people would throw in crazy ideas. Uh, uh, you know, Dan Oliver might be saying, "Okay, audience, uh, who is this guy?" And they'd go, "A radish," and then go, "Who's yeah. who's she? A stock of celery." And it's like, uh, <laughs> "Where do they meet? The bus stop." And then. <laughs> It's already insane. Their job is to try to make it relatable and have you go, oh, I yes. guess a stock of celery would feel that way, you know? Yes. So they were searching for plausible reality and emotional anchors for you in the crazy idea. Yes. And I went, okay, yes, yes, yes. that's who I need. So yeah. I brought them in and they, boy, did they just like lock right into the, the tone that I was hoping for. And they performed all that same stuff just beautifully. And Deanna Oliver, bless her heart, she was trying for all different kind of characters. And I kept coming back to Toaster. She's like, oh, I could be this character and that character. And I'm like, no, just you. And she goes, what voice? And I went, just you being you. It's just, I think you just being completely Deanna without any artifice is just your voice as Toaster. So if you meet her, she just is Toaster. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think that really anchored our film into a place so matt when you and your family could watch it i think you believing the characters on their emotional journey i think i give a lot of credit to the voice performances that that group did once i found them and brought them in they really gave me great stuff to animate too well that wraps up the first half of our interview with jerry reese we want to thank him for taking the time to share his wonderful stories about his work in animation, and we hope that you all will return next week for the next chapter where he shares his work on attractions across the globe. As always, we want to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sharing the Magic. Please hit that follow button to stay up to date on the latest episodes, and be sure to tell your friends to tune in wherever they listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Sharing the Magic Pod. Until next time, keep sharing the magic.